Parshas Shmos introduces us for the first time to Moshe, and it is from this Parsha and onward that he is the dominant personality in the Torah, leading the people out of Egypt through the Yamsuf, receiving the Torah and Harsinai, and then eventually a 40 years of leadership in the Midbar, from this week and onward until we complete the Torah at the end of Sefer Dvarim, everything revolves around Moshe and his leadership. What is particularly fascinating is the first stage of Moshe's life, his infancy. His parents are desperate to save him, and they cast him down the river, hoping for a miracle. And it happens. The princess, Bas Paro, finds the baby floating down the river and with great mercy takes the baby, wants to raise him, wants to take care of him. She finds that he will not nurse. And then, fortunately, since Moshe's loving sister Miriam had been watching, she volunteers to make sure that Moshe is nursed by Jewish women, by his mother. But eventually we read how Moshe nurses, he gets stronger, until eventually he's weaned. Until we read in Perak Bet, Pasuk Yud, he grows older, he can be independent, he is weaned, and they finally bring him back to Basparo, who still wants and expects this child. She loves him, she raises him, she treats him as a son. She calls his name Moshe. And she says, because he was drawn from the water. If you think about it, it's striking that according to the Torah, the name that Moshe was given from Basparo is the one which becomes the name which we know him as. After all, it's not exactly, exactly clear how many years this has been, but it is clear from the Torah that some time has passed. He's already Yigdal Hayeled when the Torah tells us that Basparo gave him the name of Moshe. It would seem clear, therefore, that it must have been that he must have previously had a different name, a Jewish name. His parents must have given him a name at the bris, which wasn't Moshe. It seems to be the inescapable, although perhaps at first blush shocking, implication of the text. And in fact, the Medrash says just this, both in Vayikra Rabbah as well as in the Yalkut Shemoni. Chazal inform us that Moshe did have Hebrew name. In fact, perhaps as many as ten different names, such as Avigdor, Yekutiel, Chever, Tovia. Well, if this is the case, it really begs a very interesting question. Number one, if the Torah in Lashon HaKodesh explains that the source, that the root of the name Moshe is based on the Hebrew root, Minamayim Mishitiu was drawn from the water, how did Bas Paro know Hebrew? How could she make this connection to give him that name. And secondly, if he already had names from his parents, why, for all of history, why throughout the Torah do we specifically use the name Moshe, the one that Basparo gave him, and not one of these other names that his parents gave him? So the Rishonim offer a number of different answers to these questions. Ibn Ezra begins by suggesting, perhaps, that Basparo actually gave him an Egyptian name, Munius. It's just that the Torah translates that into the Hebrew as Moshe and explains where it comes from. And evidently, Munius in Egyptian meant what Moshe and Minamayim Shitu means in Hebrew. So in fact, the name Moshe is the Hebrew translation of the name that Basparo gave him.
The second explanation of the Ebenezer is that perhaps Basparo learned to speak Hebrew and that it was she who eventually gave him that Hebrew name. The Chizkuni offers another few explanations. Perhaps, in keeping with what we just saw, it was Basparo who gave him the name, and how did she know Hebrew? Chizkuni says this is based on an opinion in Chazal that Basparo actually converted. She didn't just love Moshe. She didn't just have mercy on Moshe. She wanted to put her destiny with the Jewish people according to this opinion. She converted. She became a Gioret. She learned Hebrew, and she gave him the name Moshe. Or, finally, a fourth explanation. The Chizkuni says, actually it was Moshe's biological mother, Yocheved, at his birth, gave him the name Moshe. And it was eventually, later, that when Paro's daughter asked what the child's Hebrew name was, and they told her that the name was Moshe, so she decided to call him by his given name, by his birth name, remarking, says the Chizkuni, that this name was in fact an appropriate, a good name. After all, she had drawn him from the water. In other words, between the Chizkuni and the Eben Ezra, we have four explanations. Either that Basparo gave him an Egyptian name, Munius, that the Torah translates into Moshe, or that Basparo learned to speak Hebrew, or, number three, similar, she converted, became a Gioret, that's how she knew Hebrew and gave him the name, or actually this was the name that she never gave him. She just called him the name that he was given at his birth, because when they explained to her where the name came from, it made so much sense to her. Then the Chizkuni, however, goes on to explain something profound. And this is an idea which is also found in the Sephorno. And this relates to our second question, which is really even a more important question. Why, given what we now know, why would it be this name, Moshe, out of all the other names that he had, why is it this name that Hashem wants us to call him? Why is it this name that the Torah focuses on? And both the Chizkuni and the Sephorno, each in their own way, answer the same way. In fact, based on the Torah's description of Minhamayim Mishitihu, because I was drawn from the water, actually his name should have been Mashui, which is the passive to be drawn. Moshe is the active, but the description is he was drawn from the water, that's passive, so his name should have been Mashui. Why was it Moshe? Why was it active? It is foreshadowing with Ruach HaKodesh that one day this boy who was saved from the water, one day he would draw he would save other people from danger. Ein ksiv mashui ele Moshe. Lomar kashem shem shisihu kein yehu Moshe acherim. Just like he was saved, he wasn't saved just for no reason or just out of luck. He was saved out of destiny and hashkacha pratis. So that one day he'd be able to save his fellow Jews and draw them to safety. After running away from Egypt, after fleeing Paro's palace, Moshe makes his way to Midian. We learn that he has become the shepherd to his now father-in-law, Yisro. And in Paragimel, we read about how Moshe one day is tending the flocks of sheep of his father-in-law, when all of a sudden, out of a burning bush, a voice, a voice of Hashem, cause calling out to Moshe. He responds, Hineni. But before he could do anything, immediately, what's the very first thing Hashem tells him? Don't come any closer. Take your shoes off. Because the land in which you're standing is holy ground. This is a very surprising thing for Hashem to say, especially at this point. Isn't the whole idea of him calling out to Hashem, 
so that Moshe should come close to him? Why did Hashem call out to him, if not to bring him close? Why did he have a voice come out from the snare? Of course you should want Moshe to come close. And now the first thing he tells him is, don't come close, stop. And what's with the shoes? Why take off the shoes? What does that have to do with anything? So I want to share two beautiful ideas, each of which are not only fantastic insights into the Pasuk, but also can be really great insights and lessons for our own personal Avodah Hashem. The first comes from the Chavetz Chaim. And he emphasizes that in fact there are two separate points here, but each one working with the other. The first point, says the Chavetz Chaim, we have to realize is the key. Ki omeid, alav admas kodeshu. Hashem is stressing to Moshe that where you're standing right now, not a few feet from you where the burning bushes, where my presence is, where the miracle is happening, but right now where you are, already there, that's holy. Even without coming closer, you're standing in a holy place. Moshe is being taught that it doesn't matter where or when. The possibility of holiness, the possibility of getting close to Hashem is always possible. This phrase, is written, it's written in the present tense because it's relevant not only to Moshe then, but Rather, because it's true always. It's true now, it will be true tomorrow, it was true yesterday. It's always true. Wherever we are and whenever, we have the possibility of getting close to Hashem and experiencing Kedusha. Says the Chavetz Chaim, what's the problem? People, unfortunately, tend to say, well, once upon a time, things used to be better. Back in the good old days, in different times, it was easier. Maybe if I was part of a different family, had different life circumstances, then I could achieve holiness, then I could achieve spiritual success or greatness. Says the Chavetz Chaim, it's a mistake, because in truth, every place, every time, every person can come close to Hashem. And how? How do we do that? What's holding us back? Says the Chavetz Chaim, that's the second point. Shal nalecha mi'al raglecha. Because unfortunately, what's holding us back is our shoes. Shoes for the Chavetz Chaim symbolize anything that's artificial, anything that's a barrier between you and a Kaddish Baruch what he calls a machitza hamavdelet, a dividing wall. And says the Chavetz Chaim, there are different types of barriers, different types of dividers, sometimes physical, but usually psychological. And all we need to come close to Hashem, Moshe is being taught, and all of us are being taught, is that we have to remove the barriers. He also refers to this idea not only as a machitza, but also as a masecha, a mask. A mask we hide behind. The excuses we make for being distant from Hashem. We have to realize that to be distant is actually unnatural. It's because of a machitza or a masecha. But if we just remove the machitza, remove the masecha, take off the shoes, then it's the most natural thing. We can be close to Hashem whenever and wherever. That is the Chavetz Chaim's idea. A second approach is suggested by Rav Shimshin Rafael Hirsch. And he seems to understand this entire phrase, this entire pasuk, I should say, as one integrated idea. The bush, says Rav Hirsch, represents the things which are mysterious, things which lie beyond us, beyond our comprehension, things which we cannot understand. I mean, how could a human mind understand a bush being burnt and yet on fire without being consumed? People are naturally attracted, says Rav Hirsch, to these mysterious things. What Hashem is telling Moshe is, no, 
Stop. Don't come closer. Don't focus on, don't give your attention to, don't give all your energy towards trying to understand things which you can't understand, which are beyond your realm. Rather, take off your shoes, which according to Rav Hirsch means pause, slow down, and appreciate the spirituality and the potential of the place where you already are. Take off your shoes, remove any barrier, any mechitza. Give yourself over completely for where you are right now without trying to run towards something else. Become one, says Rafersh, with where you are right now. Don't run, don't come close. There's time for that, but other th- certain things there's never time for. We appreciate them from afar. We shouldn't spend our life tra- chasing mysteries. Rather, focus on the potential and the inherent holiness of the time and place where we find ourselves. Says our first, this is why Kohanim, when they work in the base of Mikdash, had to also take off their shoes because they had to remove any barrier, any attempt to, so to speak, go beyond. And rather, even where they were in that holy place, there's an, a natural tendency to look for something more. No, says Raversh. Kohanim, take off your shoes. Be one with exactly where you are. Really, what a beautiful, beautiful idea. And obviously a lot of overlap with what the Chavetz Chaim said, and yet clearly a difference. Whereas the Chavetz Chaim is focusing on our past, don't think other times or other places could have been better, and rather remove the excuses, take off the mask. The Hirsch says, no, it's all one thing. Don't look for things that are beyond us. Just focus on what you have in front of us now. And if we're one with that, we're living in that moment, experiencing those things to the fullest, we can achieve the greatest spiritual heights. After many years of peaceful and even successful growth and existence in the land of Egypt, we learn very early on in our Parsha how things change for the Jewish people. In the very famous Pasuk in Perak Aleph, Pasuchet, we read, Vayakam Melech Hadash, Asher Lo Yada Es Yosef. There was a new king who did not know Yosef. Rashi quotes from the famous Maimar Chazal, which is both in the Medrash and Bracious Rabbah, as well as in the Gemara Masechet Sota, a machlokes between Rav and Shmuel, whether this was really a new king, or the same old king, the same Paro, who made it as if he didn't know Yosef. The question, however, is, if Paro was new, so what? How could he not know who Yosef was? What's the difference if it was the same Paro or not? Everybody had to know who Yosef was. He was Mishnah Lamelech. He was the most powerful person in Egypt. He saved them from a famine. He ran the country. Even if it was a new Paro, he had to really know who Yosef was. And if it was the same Paro, how could he have acted this way? Why would he act as if he didn't know Yosef? So there is actually another statement of Chazal that's brought down in two lesser-known collections of Midrashim, the Medrash Sechel Tov, and what I primarily want to quote from, the Medrash Hagadol. And they explain that the root of everything is in fact a fundamental character flaw. This Paro, whether it was the same or not, is irrelevant. Whoever he was, he lacked gratitude. Instead of being a Makir Tov, he was a Kafoy Tov. 
And not being grateful and appreciative is a terrible midah. As the Medrash HaGadol writes, Ein lecha kasha liolam mekafoy tova, shu goreim shlotia tova baolam. There's nothing worse than an ingrate. There's nothing worse than not showing appreciation and gratitude. Because if you do that, then there will never be any goodness, any kindness in the world. Because it's a natural human instinct that when we do things and we help people, we want at least to be acknowledged, at least to be thanked. We don't need much, but most of us at least need that. And if not always, and at least some of the time, if not most of the time, but to never get any appreciation, it's only a matter of time, and the Medrash understands this, that without that sense of positive feedback, that sense of appreciation and gratitude, people will simply stop doing kind things. So the Medrash explains that as terrible, and it is terrible, at this midah of being a kafui tov, of not being grateful, as terrible as that is and how it destroys relationships, but even as bad as it is on an interpersonal, Beit Aram L'chavero level, Chazal detect that there is an additional, deeper, spiritual flaw. As the Medrash says, you start off being kafui tov to Yosef, ulabasof, what started off as simple ingratitude towards Yosef and how he had saved Egypt eventually led to complete denial and the existence of Hashem, complete heresy and spiritual bankruptcy. Where does the Medrash get this from? How does it know to make such an astounding statement? So the Medrash points out that even though when Yosef initially met Paro, when he was interpreting his dreams, Yosef consistently and repeatedly acknowledged the existence of God, of Hashem, and how all of his power came from him. So clearly, Paro had to know of Hashem, of the Jewish God. Nevertheless, later, towards the end of our Parsha, when Moshe finally comes to him and says, I'm coming on behalf of the God of the Jewish people, who has said the time is now, let my people go. Perakeh, Pasuk Bet, what does Paro respond? Lo yes Hashem. I have no idea who you're talking about. Who is this Hashem? Who is this Jewish God? Says the Medrash, it is not a coincidence that the Paro who was ungrateful to Yosef also claims not to know Hashem. Rather, says the Medrash, a line of causation, a direct line, can be drawn between these two statements. Gratitude is an essential midah. If you don't have it towards other people, you will also not have it towards Hashem. People, people who are grateful see kindness, see the kindness of others everywhere. And even it starts with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. They appreciate, they notice, and they're grateful for what everyone, including Hashem, does for them. On the other hand, those who see everything that good happens to them in life as coming to them, as we would say in Hebrew, Magiali in Yiddish, Eskumtmir. Such people don't appreciate anyone. They're not Makir Tov, and they're certainly not Makir Hakarish Barhu. It doesn't matter if it's the kindness of a loving spouse, a generous stranger, or certainly Hashem, God Almighty. If you have that Mida, that fatal character flaw of being an ingrate, it will not stop with just people in your life. Eventually, it will cause you to be a heretic, to, not, to deny HaKadosh Baruch Hu. As the Medrash HaGadol concludes, His haru shalot Be careful not to deny 
the goodness that I've done for you. Shakafoy tov, a person who's a kafoy tov, who doesn't appreciate the good and kindness of other people, can also not appreciate the kindness and goodness of a Kaddish Baruch Hu. A straight line can be drawn between Paro's lack of gratitude towards, towards Yosef and his lack of belief in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And of course, the lesson for us is equally clear. The importance of gratitude, being a makir tov to everyone in our life, and especially, and therefore, ultimately, to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, for all the blessings he puts into our lives. Hashem chooses Moshe at the burning bush to be the leader of the Jewish people at this critical time. Moshe is chosen to liberate the Jewish people from Mitzrayim and eventually take them through the Midbar to receive the Torah and to become the defining leader of the Jewish people. The question is why? Why is Moshe chosen? What do we know about him before this momentous event that changed, obviously, his life but also changed Jewish history. Rav Simcha Zisselziv, otherwise known as the Altar of Kelim, the premier, or one of the premier students of Yisrael Salanter, has a beautiful, beautiful series of essays right at the outset of his classic work, Chachma Umusr, in which he outlines a theory not only about Moshe, but also one that teaches us a very critical, important message for our own personal development. He points out that the very first thing we hear about Moshe in the beginning of Perak Bet, even before he is chosen at the burning bush, is that Vayigdal Moshe, as Rashi tells us, he didn't just grow up in the palace, but in fact he had been pointed to a position of gedula, of leadership. And despite that privileged background, Vayetzi elachav vayar besivlotam. He goes out to his brothers, he goes out to the slave pits, he sees how the Jewish people are suffering. And as Rashi says so powerfully, Two separate points. First, he focuses on what Rav Simchazisl calls, he truly saw the Chazal and Rashi are emphasizing the power of the visual, which is even more powerful than just hearing about the destitute situation of the slaves, but rather he saw it. He saw it with his own eyes, and that led to Libo Meitzar Aleihem. It wasn't just that he saw, but because he saw it affected, it went into his heart, and then he was truly Meitzar Aleihem. He was truly in pain for the the suffering of his fellow Jews. He was, says Rav Simcha Zissel, feeling empathy, what Chazal and Perkeyavos call Nose Ba'ol Im Chavero. It wasn't just that he heard and said, ah, that's so sad that people have to be slaves. But by seeing it, he identified with it. He felt their pain. And therefore, Memela, because he felt their pain, he actually cared and tried to help. This initial description of Moshe, as powerful as it is, says of Simchazisol, this refers to, or this describes, Moshe as being taken by the tsar, the pain of the rabbim. And we can imagine that many people, if they become aware of millions of people suffering in slavery, that might move them. 
However, he points out that in a series of progressively more powerful incidents, Moshe does not limit his empathy just for the masses or the big numbers. In fact, the very next thing we hear about him is, even for an individual, he sees the Egyptian taskmaster beating up one of his fellow Jews, someone who he identifies with. He had he even had empathy for an individual Jew. And it wasn't even that. Even when the people who are fighting are both Jews, they're both brothers. Nevertheless, he intervenes. Russia, Lama Takah He yells at that one, accuses him, why are you beating up your friend? Even when the perpetrator was a Jew. We all understand that when it's an us versus them, when we can view the perpetrator as the other, it makes it easier for us to empathize with the victim. But what about when it's an internal fight, when both the victim and the perpetrator are echav, are your brothers, are your fellow Jews? It might be harder to empathize with the victim. Even here, Moshe has this midav nose ba'olim chavero, and empathy. And finally, he says, it's not just when he was in his own comfort zone, when he was in the hometown, when he was in Egypt, part of the upper class, when he had no worries of his own, but even after he had to run away to Midian, when he himself was a refugee, when Moshe had plenty to worry about himself, there was a warrant out for him, a price on his head in Egypt. And yet, when he sees the shepherds taking advantage of Yisro's daughters, even when both people involved are strangers, and he has plenty of his own worries to preoccupy him, there are no brothers involved, and yet, despite the fact that everyone there are strangers, he still gets involved and helps Yisro's daughters and their cattle. In summarizing all of this, the altar of Kelam says, we learn all of this, the Torah told us all of this, even before the burning bush, so that we understand that this is why Moshe was chosen. He may have been highly spiritual, he may have been brilliant, all those things may be true, but it is this why he is chosen. It's because he had this trait of empathy, of no seibo'olim chavero. He adds, it's also not a coincidence that Moshe was a shepherd, as other great biblical heroes, both before and after him, were. Because he says to be a shepherd molds empathy even for the cattle. That's the level of human sensitivity and empathy that our leaders had and that we should all aspire to. In summarizing this, he makes one final point, that at the moment of actual choosing, we now understand why Hashem chose him, but at the moment of actual choosing, how does does Hashem, excuse me, choose to talk to Moshe? He appears through the sneh, or thorn bush. And Rashi there famously quotes, that why that out of any other bush? Imo anochi batsara, the painful, brittle, sharp thorn bush, was symbolic of the fact that Hashem says, I, I, God, I feel their pain. It's as if I'm in that thorn bush. I'm getting scratched. I'm getting beat up, so to speak, with them. Even our Kaddish Baruch had this media of empathy. And we are being taught that from a young age, Moshe intuited that this was a divine attribute. And he internalized it as part of his Bahalachta Bedrachav, his imitation of God's Mido, something we're all called upon. There are so many things we try to emulate like God had. But the first and foremost for all of us, and especially for our leaders, is empathy.
Hashem gives Moshe instructions to go down to Egypt to liberate the Jewish people. He tells them in Paragdalet, Pasuk Yates, Leich Shuv Mitzrayim ki mesu makshim es nafshecha. Go return to Egypt, because all those people who previously have been after you, all those people who previously have been persecuting you and trying to kill you, they themselves have already died. Why does Hashem add that as part of his instructions to Moshe? Why wasn't it simply enough for Hashem to say, Leich Shuv Mitzrayim, go, because I said so. Because I'm Hashem. Why does he add this qualification that those people who previously had been running after you are not around anymore? So the Mesha Chachma, in his commentary to our Parsha, explains that the Torah is teaching us a Chiddush in Halacha. That if a person has an opportunity to save his fellow Jews, but the only way to do that would be to put himself in danger, in a situation of even Suffolk Pikuach Nefesh, he'd be putting himself in a situation where he might be able, might be killed, we see from Moshe that a person is not obligated to do so. Hashem was stressing to Moshe that you should go down to Egypt to liberate and save the Jewish people because it is at no risk to you. You're not putting yourself in danger. Because those people who wanted you, they're already gone. You're long forgotten. It's safe for you to return to Egypt. But, says the Meshachachmo, the inference from the Pasuk is clear. Had it been that those people were still around, had it been a situation in which Moshe's return to Egypt would have put him at danger, him at risk, he would have had the right to turn down Hashem's command, to ignore it. He could have said to Hashem, I appreciate the mitzvah, but I'm exempt. I'm not listening because I would be putting myself at risk. And he would have been legitimate in saying so, says Meshachachma. That's why Hashem reassures him, no, 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 don't worry, there is no danger. Hence, Moshe was obligated to eventually go down. This is an amazing Chiddush of the Meshachachma, that to save multitudes of Jews, even the whole Jewish people, a person is not obligated to put himself at risk. Is this really true? Do we accept this Meshachachma? Is he correct? So in order to analyze this question and reach a conclusion, let's take a step back for a moment and ask a more basic question on the micro level. What obligations do we have to save an individual? Forget big crowds, large numbers of the Jewish people. How about just a single other person who's at risk? Do I have to save that person if I can? Or is it just not my business and I can ignore it if I want to? So on the one hand, the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Daf Ayin Gimel, tells us, Lo sa'amod al-dam If you see someone whose life is at risk, the Gemara gives examples of someone who's drowning in the sea, or a wild animal is chasing him, and you have a very easy ability to save that person. There's a life preserver there. You can throw it into the ocean. Or there's a phone and you can call the ambulance. You can call the lifeguard or the coast guard. Or you can somehow call animal protective services. Or maybe you have a gun and you can uh, disable the animal or whatever the case may be. If you could do that, you are obligated to do so. And if you don't do that, you have violated this terrible sin of you must do what you can to save your fellow Jew. On the other hand, the famous Gemara Bamatsiya Daf Samach Beis tells us about two people who are wandering in the desert and one of them has a canteen of water, enough water to save himself. But if he keeps the water for himself, his friend will die. But if he shares the water with his friend, they both will die. What should he do? The first opinion of the Gemara says, share the water, losamod, you can't just let someone die. Share the water, and if you both die, you both die, hope for the best. However, the conclusion of the Gemara is based on the famous opinion of Rabbi Akiva, who says, Chayecha Kodmin, the very most basic human instinct of self-preservation is in fact endorsed by halacha, accepted by the Torah. Yes, we care about our fellow Jew. Yes, we care about our fellow human being. Yes, we say usually, but if it's a suicide mission, if helping your fellow Jew, you're helping another person requires you to give up your life, that we do not require. 
Chayecha Kodmin, Chayecha Bercha. These are two extreme cases. What about a case in the middle? Not where there's no danger at all, but not a suicide mission. Not black or white, something in the middle, something gray, where you'd be putting yourself at risk. There is some risk, but it's not anything close to a certainty that you'd be putting yourself in life-threatening situation. Suffolk, Pikuach Nefesh. It's a case of doubt, a possible danger to your life. Are you obligated to risk your life even in that case or not? Is that more like the first case or the second case? So this is a fascinating machlokas in the postgame. There are those, such as the Kesef Mishnah, who say you are obligated as long as it's not a vaday pikuach nefesh, like the case in the desert, it's just a suffolk. You might be at, you might you might be at risk. You have to take that chance and risk your life to save someone else. However, other post schemes such as the radvaz and the sma say no. There is no such obligation. Even if it's only a suffolk pikuach nefesh, you're not obligated to put yourself in the eye in the in face of danger. You don't have to risk your own life. And in fact, this seems to be the majority view, and that is how many poskim paskin, including none other than the Mishnah Brura and the Archashokhan and many others who say it's a mitzvah, it would be laudable if you did it, but if there's any kind of suffix, any question of pikuach nefesh for you, you're not obligated to put yourself in that situation to save another person. So all of this has been a very fascinating discussion about an individual Jew. But what about if it's not an individual Jew whose life is at risk? But it's a multitude of Jews. It's perhaps even the entire Jewish people. So as we started out in the Shir, the Meshachachma's view is, it doesn't matter. The halacha doesn't change if it's one, or a million, or five million. Just like Moshe would have been exempt from returning to Egypt had his life been at risk. In that case, he was potter. So too, in any other person's situation, if they would be putting themselves at risk, if they would be in a situation of safi pikoach nefesh, then they are exempt even if it means that you would not be able to save many, many, many Jews. Moshe was exempt, and so too you would be exempt. However, many other postgames disagree. And they say that you can't compare the life of one person, who of course we would ordinarily want to save, but you don't have to risk your life to do so, or if we're talking about huge numbers of Jews such as the Jewish people, the entire Jewish people. Rav Kook has chuvas about this topic. His successor, the first chief rabbi of the state of Israel, Rav Herzog, has chuvos, and they both disagree with the Meshachachma's conclusion. They disagree with his interpretation of the story of Moshe, and more importantly, they disagree with the actual psak. As Rav Kook says, it's a haraz shah lamigdar milsa. We don't have to look for a particular detail in halacha that tells me it's obligated. If the whole Jewish people are at risk, of course, Rav Kook says, you have to risk your life in order to save the Jewish people. 100%. It's definitely an obligation. There's no question about it. It's a meta-halachic principle. Halacha can't allow the Jewish people to die. And that is a fascinating debate, as we see here, emerging from our Parsha. Even as Hashem has spoken directly to Moshe and told him that the time of redemption is fast approaching and that he should be the one who will be the instrument of that ge'ula. He will be the shliach, the goel who will redeem the Jewish people. We know that Moshe did not accept that mandate right away. In fact, they had a prolonged negotiation, a back and forth between them. And in the context of that back and forth, that incredible dialogue between God and Moshe, there is a very famous and incredibly enigmatic set of psukim. In Perak Gimel, psukim Yigimel, Pasuk Yedalid, where Moshe says to Hashem, Moshe says, even if I go, and even if I tell them that the God of your forefathers has sent me, they will say to me, what is his name? What will I answer? If they ask me to identify God, I'll have to, so to speak, prove my bona fides. 
what will I describe you as? How will I say, you know, you were the one that sent me? God tells Moshe, I will be what I will be. This is what you should tell the Jewish people. That sounds like a pronoun for God, a nickname for God. That's the one who sent me to you. Now, this is obviously an enigmatic pasuk, to put it mildly. What exactly is going on? What was Moshe's concern? And more importantly, for our purposes, uh, what exactly is God saying? What dimension of God, what can we understand about God based on this pasuk? How is Hashem trying to reveal himself to Moshe? How is Moshe supposed to describe God to the Jewish people in Egypt? And how are we supposed to understand what is going on? Moreover, what is the double language? You know, it's hard to understand what Hayyeh means in this context. God defines himself as Hayyeh, that's all of a sudden the name of God. What is the double language? And how does this answer the question? Perhaps a, a clue to this can be found in Rashi in the immediately preceding Pasuk. In Pasuk Yudbeis, when Moshe uh, is worried as well about, uh, you know, who am I and why should anyone listen to me, etc. So Hashem says to him, Kiyem cha, Imach, excuse me, I'll be with you. This will be a sign for you. You should know that I sent you because you should know these people that I'm ta- you're taking out of Mitzrayim, they are going to be ta'avdunas alukim alaharazeh. They will uh, worship me on this mountain. And if you take a look on that, ra- on that pasuk, Rashi, pasuk Yitbeis, Rashi describes uh, the deeper message that Moshe was wondering about. That is to say, Moshe was asking, and what merit the Jewish people deserve to come out? Why you know, should they be redeemed at this point? And in essence, the answer that the Torah is giving, that God is giving Moshe, is that really they don't have any zchus now, but it's al shem ha'atid, it's for the future. Because you should know, I'm not just taking them out because of something they deserve now, I'm taking them out because they're going to get the Torah, and it's for that ultimate purpose that they need to come out, that they deserve to come out now. Rebbe Yitzhak of Berdichev, the famed Hasidic master in his classic work, Kedushas Levi, uses his Rashi, so to speak, as a hook, to explain the deeper message of the Pasuk that we are focusing on in the name of God, Ehyeh, and what exactly does that mean for us? Says Rav Levi Yitzchak, Ehyeh, I will be, in its very nature, refers to something in the future. I will be. It's a future reality that's being described. Ehyeh, Asher Ehyeh, the double language, says Rav Levi Yitzchak, refers to something further down, far down the road, which will come after the initial Ehyeh. There's an initial future stage, and even if you achieve that and reach that, there'll be something else that comes after that. Says of Levi Yitzchak, what Hashem is telling Moshe, and really communicating to all of us, is the essence of how to live a meaningful life, how to live a truly spiritual life. A person must be, says of Levi Yitzchak, future and goal-oriented, always on the move towards the next goal. And whenever that goal is accomplished, then we immediately need to think about the next goal, and the newest goal to strive towards, the next accomplishment, that we can even reach higher than the one that we've just now attained. This desire, says Rav Yitzchak, is never-ending, because there's always a higher summit to climb. Eheyeh is a tzivoy, always be growing, never stay in one place. We have to understand, says Rav Yitzchak, and this is an idea that many thinkers have pointed out, that human beings are by nature not static. If we're not going up, we're going down. There's a metaphysical gravity, just like there's a natural gravity. And like that natural gravity, metaphysical gravity also pulls us down. The only way to avoid that is to be striving to go up. Life is like walking up a down escalator. If we're not striving to climb, by nature, we will, by definition almost, we will be going down. 
says Rav Levi Yitzchak, that is the essence of everything. You want to know who sent you, you want to know what life you'll be committing to if you join Moshe and leave Mitzrayim. It's a life of a and after a comes Asher Hayah, another goal, and more goals. The founder of Hasidus, the Baal Shem Tov, used to make this point with the parable, with the mashal of a parent teaching a child how to walk. And we know that whenever the child walks those two or three steps, and he or she thinks they've reached the goal of getting into the parent's arms, what do the parents do? Immediately move back another two or three steps. Because the real goal, of course, is not those two or three steps or even the hug of the parents. The real goal in that case is learning how to walk. So to life, says the Baal Shem Tov, echoing this idea that Rav Yitzhak is reading into our Pasuk. The goal of life is a hayah, always to be growing, always to be moving. When we think we've reached the goal, when we've climbed the summit, when the hands of God are about to hug us and say, you made it, God moves back, so to speak. There's another goal. We have to have another goal. Always climbing higher, always striving to grow, to get better. Rav Yitzhak has a classic, uh, so to speak, Hasidic uh, interpretation of a well-known pasuk in Tehillim to further buttress this point. The well-known pasuk in Tehillim, Achas Sha'alti Me'es Hashem, Os Avakesh. Right? This is the one thing I'm asking for God. And we seem to repeat at the end of the pasuk, Os Avakesh, as if to underscore, it's really, really the only thing I'm asking. And that leads to all sorts of other questions in famous Divrei Torah based on the continuation of this parak in Tehillim. But on that very verse itself, Achas Sha'alti Me'es Hashem, Os Avakesh says Rav Yitzchak in a clearly creative Hasidic uh, reading of the Pasuk that the deeper meaning is what's Achashualti? What's the main thing? What's the one true thing that I need in life? Os Avakesh. That I should always be an Avakesh. I should always be someone who's asking, who's striving, who's looking to grow, who's always trying to get more. I want to be an Avakesh. That's really the only one thing that I need. I should always be an Avakesh. This is the idea of Ehyeh Asher Ehyeh. The essence of life, says Rav Yitzchak, being communicated to Jewish people, always be striving, always be future-oriented.